Chapter Fifteen of Shorty McCabe by Sewell Ford. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Flag it now, and I'll say it for you. Yes, you read it about it in the papers, and says you, is it all so? Well, some of it was, and some of it wasn't. But what do you expect? No two of the crowd would tell it the same way if they was put on the stand the next minute. Here's the way it looked from where I stood, though, and I was some close, wasn't I? You see, after I woke up from that last trance, I gets to thinking about Sadie and Miriam and all them false alarms I've been ringing in, and says I to myself, Shorty, if I couldn't make a better showin' than that, I'd quit the game. So I quits. I chases myself back to town for good, says hello to all the boys, and tells Swifty Joe if he sees me making another move towards the country to heave a sandbag at me. Not that there was any loud call for me to tend out so strict on the physical culture game. I've been kind of easing up on that lately and dipping into outside things. And it was them I needed to keep closer track of. You know, I've got a couple of flat houses up on the west side, and if you let them agents run things their own way, you'll be making almost enough to buy new hall carpets once a year. Then there was ripe chances I was afraid of missing. You see, knocking around so much with the fat wads, I often see spots where a few dollars could be planted right. Sometimes it's a hunch on the market, and then again it's a straight steer on a slice of foot front that's going cheap. I do a lot of dickering that way. Well, I just pushed through a deal that leaves me considerable on velvet, and I was feeling kind of flush and sassy when Mr. Ogden calls me up and wants to know if I can make use of a gilt-edged bargain. Oh, I don't know, says I. What's it look like? It's the Toreador, says he. Sounds good, says I. How much? Cost me forty thousand two years ago, says he, but I'm turning it over for twenty-five to the first bidder. We'll say, when old man Ogden slings cold figures at you like that, you can gamble that he's talking straight. I'm it, then, says I. Fifteen down, ten on mortgage. That suits me, says he. I'll have the papers made out today. And say, says I, what is this Toreador, anyway? A racehorse or an elevator apartment? Would you guess it? He'd hung up the receiver. That's what I got for being sporty. But I wasn't going to renege at that stage. I fills out me little blue check and sends her in. And that night I goes to bed without knowing what it is that I've passed up my coin for. It must have been near noon the next day, for I'd written a letter and got my checkbook stubs added up so they'd come within two or three hundred of what the bank folks made it, when a footman in white panties and a plum-colored coat drifts through the studio door. Is this Professor McCabe, sir? says he. Yep, says I. There's a lady below, sir, says he. Can she come up? It ain't regular, says I, but I suppose there's no dodging her. Tell her to come ahead. Say, I wasn't fixed up for receiving carriage company. When I writes in figures, I gets more mussed up than as if I'd been in a free-for-all. I'd shed my coat on one chair, my vest on another, slipped off my suspenders, rumbled my hair, and got ink on me in seventeen places. But I didn't have sense enough to say I was out. In a minute or so, there was a click-click on the stairs. 
I gets a whiff of Lisoire Danube, and in comes a veiled lady. She was a brandied peach, from the outside lines, anyway. Them clothes of hers couldn't have left Paris more than a month before, and they clung to her like a wet undershirt to a fat man. And if you had any doubts as to whether or no she had the goods, all you had to do was to squint at the big amethyst in the handle of the gold-born net she wore around her neck. For a Felix-Tiffany combination, she was it. You've seen women of that kind, regular walking expense accounts. So you are Shorty McCabe, are you? says she, giving me a customs inspector look over and kind of sniffing. Sorry I don't suit, says I. How odd, says she. I must make a note of that. Help yourself, says I. Is there anything else? Is it true, says she, that you have bought the Toreador? Who's been giving you that, says I, pricking up my ears. Mr. Ogden, says she. He's an authority, says I, and what he says along that line I don't dispute. Then you have bought it, says she. How exasperating. I was going to get Mr. Ogden to let me have the Toreador this week. The whole of it, says I. Why, of course, says she. Gee, thinks I. It can't be an apartment house, then. Maybe it's an oil painting or a parlor car. But there, she goes on, I suppose you only bought it as a speculation. Now, what is your price for next week? Say, for the love of Pete, I couldn't tell what it was gave me a grouch. Maybe it was only the offhand way she threw it out, or the snippy chin toss that goes with it but I felt like I'd been stroked with a piece of sandpaper. It's too bad, says I, but you've made a wrong guess. I'm using the Toreador next week myself. You, says she, and through the gauze curtain I could see her hump her eyebrows. That finished the job. Even if the Toreador turned out to be a new opera house or a touring balloon, I was going to keep it busy for the next seven days. Why not me, I says. All alone, says she. Well, I didn't know where it would land me, but I wasn't going to have her tag me for a solitaire spender. Not much, says I. I was just making up my list. How do you spell Mrs. Twombly Crane's last name? With a K? Really, says she. Do you mean to say that she is to be one of your guests? Then you must be going just where I'd planned to go, to the Newport Evolutions. Sure thing, says I. I'd heard of their having all kinds of fool doings at Newport, but Evolutions wasn't one of them. The bluff had to be made good, though. The lady pushes up her mosquito netting drop like she wanted to see if I was unwinded the string ball or not, and then for a minute she taps her chin with them folding eyeglasses. I wanted to sing out to her that she'd dent the enamel if she didn't quit being so careless, but I held in. Say, what's the use in eating carrots and taking buttermilk baths when you can have a mercurized complexion like that laid on at the shop? All of a sudden, she flashes up a little silver case and pushes out a visiting card. There's my name and address, says she. If you should change your mind about using the Toreador, you may telephone me, and I hope you will. Oh, says I, spelling out the old English letters. I've heard of Pinckney speak of you. Well, say, seeing as you're so anxious, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll just put you down for an invite. How does that hit you? 
I had an idea she might blow up at that. But say, there was nothing of the kind. Why, says she, I'm not sure, but that would be quite a novelty. Yes, you may count on me. Good day. And she was gone, without so much as a thank you kindly. When I came to, I had sized the thing all up. It looked like I got in over my head. I was due to stand for some kind of a racket, but whether it was a picnic or a surprise party, I didn't know. What I wanted just then was information, and for certain kinds of knowledge, there's nobody like Pinckney. I was dead lucky to locate him, too, but I took a chance on his being in town, so I found him at his special corner table in the palm room, just looking a dry martini in the face. Hello, shorty, says he. Haven't lunched yet, have you? Join me. I will, says I, if you'll answer me two questions. First off, what is it that Mr. Ogden owns that he calls the Toreador? Why, says Pinckney, that's his steam yacht. Steam yacht, says I, getting a good grip on the chair to keep from falling out. And me dead sure it was a bunch of six room and baths. Oh, well, let that pass. What's done is done. Now what's this evolution stunt they're pulling off up at Newport next week? The naval evolutions, of course, says Pinckney. You should read the newspapers, Shorty. I do, says I, but I didn't see a word about it on the sporting page. He gave me the program, though, how they was going to have a sham torpedo battle winding up with the grand illumination of the fleet. You ought to run up and see it, says he. It looks like I had to, says I. But what about the Toreador, says he. Nothing much, says I. Only I've bought the blamed thing. It was Pinckney's turn to grow bug-eyed. But when I'd told him all about the deal and how the veiled lady had stung me into saying what I had, he's as pleased as if he'd been reading the joke column. Shorty, says he, you're a genius. Why, that's the very thing to do. Get together your party, steam up there, anchor in the harbor, and see the show. It's deuced good form, you know. That's all I want, says I. Just so long as I'm sure I'm in good form, I'm happy. But say, I wouldn't dare tackle it unless you went along. I found out later that Pinckney'd turned down no less than three parties of that kind. But when I puts it up to him, he never fiddles short at all. Why, I'd be delighted, says he. With that, we finishes our cold fried egg salad, or whatever fancy dish it was we had on the platter, and then we pikes off to the pier where he says the yacht's tied up. And say, she was something of a boat. She made that Dixie Goyle that Woody and me brought the incubator kids down in look like a canoe. She was white all over, except for a gold streak around her and a couple of dinky yellow masts. I didn't go downstairs. We plants ourselves in some green cushion easy chairs under the back stoop awning, and I sends one of the white wing hired hands after the conductor. It's the sailing master you want, says Pinckney. Well, bring him along too, says I. But there was only the one. He was a solid-built, quiet-spoken chap, with a full set of red whiskers and a state of Maine accent. He said his name was Bassett, and that he was just packing his things to go ashore, having heard that the boat had been sold. The shore'll be there next month, says I. What do you take to stay on the job? Well, he didn't want no iron wakes wages, 
being content with the captain's salary, so I tells him to take hold right where he left off and tell the rest of the gang they could do the same. So inside half an hour, I has a couple of dozen men on the payroll. Gee, says I to Pinckney, I'm glad the yachting season's most over when I begin. If it wasn't, I'm thinking I'd have to go out nights with a jimmy. But Pinckney's busy with his silver pencil, writing down names. There, says he, I've thought of a dozen nice people that I'm sure of, and perhaps I'll remember a few more in the meantime. Say, says I, have you got the Twombly Cranes and Sadie on that list? Oh, certainly, says he, especially Sadie. And then he grins. Well, for about four days I'm the busiest man out of a job in New York. I carries a bunch of railroad stocks on margin, trades off some Bronx building lots for a cold-water tenement, and unloads a street-opening contract that I bought off from a Tammany Hall man. Every time I thinks of that steam yacht, with all of them hands boinin' up my money, I goes out and does some more hustlin'. Say, there's nothing like needin' the dough for keepin' the feller up on his toes, is there? And when the time came to knock off, and I'd reckoned up how much I was to the good, I feels like Johnny Gates after he's cashed his chips. Yes, indeed. I was a gay boy as I goes aboard the Toreador and waits for the crowd to come along. I'd made myself a present of a white flannel suit and a willy collie a yachtin' cap, and if there'd been an orchestra down front, I could have done a yo-ho-ho baritone solo right off the reel. Pickney shows up in good season, and he'd fetched his people all right. There was a string of touring cars and carriages half a block long. They was all friends of mine, too, from Sadie to the little old bishop. And they was nice, decent folks. Maybe they didn't have their pictures printed in the Sunday editions as often as some, but their ice cutters just the same. They all said it was lovely of me to remember them. Ah, put it away, says I. You folks has been blowin' me off and on for a year, and this is my first set-up. I ain't wise to the way things ought to be done on one of these boudoir boats, but I wants everyone to be happy. Don't wait for the who-wants-to-waiter call, but just act like you was all starboarders. Everything in sight is yours, from the wicker chairs on deck to what's in the icebox below. And I want to say right here that I'm mighty glad you've come. Now, Mr. Bassett... I guess you can tie her loose. Honest, that was the first speech I ever shot off in or out of the ring, but it seemed to go. They was all patting me on the back and giving me the grand jolly when a cab comes down the pier on the jump. Someone waves a red parasol and floats out the veiled lady with a maid. I'd sent her an invite, just as I said I would, but I never thought she'd have the front to take it up. We came near missing you, says I, stepping up to the gangplank. But say, she was so busy shaking hands and calling the rest of them by their front names that she didn't see me at all. It was that way all day long while we was going up the sound. She cornered almost everyone else and chinned to em real earnest about something or other, but I never seemed to get in range. Well, I was having too good a time to feel cut up about it, but I couldn't help being curious. One until dinner time that I got a line on her. Say, she was a convoyser. No matter what was opened up, she hoid her cue. And knock! Why, she had a tack hammer in each hand. They was cute, spiteful little taps that made you snicker foist. 
and then you got ashamed of yourself for doing it. Ain't she got any friends besides what's here, says I to Sadie, after we'd got through and gone up front by ourselves to see the moon rise? I'm not so sure about even these, says Sadie. Then why didn't someone cut in with a comeback, says I? It isn't exactly safe, says she. Oh, says I, she's that kind, is she? You'd think from her talk that she knew only two sorts of women, them that had been divorced and them that ought to be. I'm afraid that's her specialty, said Sadie. Sort of a lady muckraker, eh? says I. Well, I hope all she says ain't so. How about it? Well, that was the beginning of a heart-to-heart talk that lasted for a good many miles. Somehow Sadie and I had never had a real quiet chance like that before, and it came out that we had a lot to say to each other. I don't know how it was, but the rest of them seemed to let us alone. Some was back under the awning and others was downstairs playing whist. There was singing, too, but we couldn't make out just who was doing it and didn't care a whole lot. Anyway, it was the bulliest ride I ever had. The moon come up over Long Island as big as a billboard and as yellow as a chorus girl's hair. The air was a kind of soft and warm, like it gets in the front room of a Turkish bath place and there wasn't anything on either side nearin' the shore lights way off in the dark. It wasn't any time for thinking hard of anyone, so we agrees that the lady muckraker must have been born with a bad taste in her mouth and can't help it, letting her slide at that. I forgot what it was we did talk about. It was each other, mostly, I guess. You can do that when you've known anyone as long as we had, and it's a comfort once in a while. After a bit, though, we didn't say much of anything. I was just looking at Sadie. And say, I've seen her when I thought she looked mighty nice. But I never got just that view of her before, with the moon kind of touching up her red hair and her cheeks and neck looking like white satin. She has a way, too, of staring off at nothing at all sometimes, and then there's a look in her eyes and a little twist to her mouth corners that just sets me tingling all over with the wantin' to put me arm around her and tell her that no matter who else goes back on her, there'll always be Shorty McCabe to fall back on. It wasn't anything new or sudden for me. I'd felt that way many a time, and as far back as when her mother ran a prune dispensary next door to my house, and she and I used to sit on the front steps after supper, She'd have spells of staring that way then, chopping off a laugh in the middle to do it, and maybe finishing up with a giggle. I guess that's only the Irish in her, but it always caught me. She must have been looking that way then, for the first thing I knows, I'd reached out and pulled her up close. She never kicks, but just snuggles her head down on my shoulder, with them blue eyes turned so I could look way down into them. At that, I draws a deep breath. Sadie, says I, husky-like, you're the best ever. She only smiles, kind of sober, but kind of contented, too. And if I had the noive, says I, I'd ask you to be Mrs. Shorty McCabe. It's too bad you've lost your noive so sudden, says she. What? says I. Will you, Sadie? Will you? Silly, says she. Of course I will. Bless the saints, says I. When? Any time, shorty, says she. You've been long enough about it, goodness knows. 
Well, say, you talk about your whirlwind finishes. I guess the crowd that was bunched there in the cabin saying goodnight must have thought I'd gone clear off my pivot the way I comes down the stairs. Where's the bishop, says I. Right here, my boy, says he. What's the matter? Matter, says I. Why, it's the greatest thing ever happened, and nobody to it. Folks, I says, if the bishop is willin' and hasn't forgot his lines, there's going to be a wedding take place right here in the main tent inside of fifteen minutes. Whoopee, I yells. Sadie said she would. That's the way we did it, too, and for a short notice affair, it was done in style. Even to a wedding march that someone feeds into the pianola and gets going. Pinckney digs up a ring, and the bishop gives us the nicest little off-hand talk you ever listens to. I blushes, and Sadie blushes, and Mrs. Twombly Crane hugs both of us when it's over. Then I has the steward lug up a lot of cold bottles, and I breaks a ten-year drought with a whole glass of fizz water. Right in the middle of the toast, the sailing master shows up on the stairs and says, "'We're just making harbor, sir.' "'Forget it, Bassett,' says I. "'I want you to drink to the health of Mrs. McCabe.' "'And when he hears what's been going on, "'he's the most flabbergasted sailor man I ever saw. "'After that, we all has to go up "'and take a look at Newport and the warships, "'but they was all as black and quiet "'as a side street in Brooklyn after ten o'clock. "'Say, it's a shame all them folks ain't in on this,' says I. "'Bassett, can you make a little noise?' just to let him know we are celebrating. Bassett thought he could. He hadn't made any mistake, either. In two shakes, we had all the lights aboard turned on and sky rockets whizzing up as fast as they could be touched off. Did we wake up them warships? Well, rather. First, we hears a lot of dinner gongs going off. Then colored lanterns was sent up, whistles blew, bugles bugled, and inside of three minutes by the watch there was guns bang-banging away like it was the 4th of July. Great Scott, says Pinckney. I never knew before that the United States Navy would turn out in the middle of the night to salute a private yacht. It depends on who owns the yacht, eh, Sadie, says I. By the time the guns got through banging, we had a dozen searchlights turned on us, and a strong lunged gent on the nearest warship was yelling things at us through a megaphone. He wants to know, sir, says Bassett, if we've got the Secretary of the Navy on board. Tell him not guilty, says I, and Bassett did. That didn't satisfy Mr. Officer, though. Then why in thunder, says he, do you make such a fuss coming into the harbor at this time of night? "'Because I've just been getting married,' says I in my Bosco voice. "'And who the blazes are you?' says he. "'Can't you guess?' says I. "'I'm Shorty McCabe.' "'Oh,' says he. "'And you could hear the ha-has come across the water from along the line. "'There was a wait for a minute, and then he hails again. "'Ahoy, Shorty McCabe,' says he. "'The Commodore presents his compliments and says he hopes you liked your wedding salute.' And if you don't mind, the gun crews want to give three cheers for Mrs. McCabe. So Sadie and I stands up by the rail, with more limelight on us than we ever had before or since. And about six hundred jackies gives us their college try. There wasn't anything slow about that as a send-off for a wedding tour, was there? But then, as I says to Sadie, look who we are. And say, 
if you'll be on the dock when we come back from Bar Harbor. We'll take you along down to Old Point with us, eh? Think it over. End of chapter 15 Recording by Scotty End of Shorty McCabe by Sewell Ford